Players Podcast Standby. Places, please. Hosts and guests, places, please. House lights, go. Curtain, go. Podcast, go. Welcome to Places, Please, a podcast produced by the Community Players Theater in Beatrice, Nebraska. I'm Jamie Ulmer, Managing Artistic Director at the Theater, and this is Season 4, Episode 6, for our regular season production of Murder on the Orient Express. This show is the fourth production in our 2022-2023 regular season. In Act 2, we have an extended talk with Scott Clark, who plays the famous detective, Hercule Perrault. We talk about playing this iconic character, but also dive into a lot of great trivia and background information about Agatha Christie. But first, we have to visit Act 1. Murder on the Orient Express is a murder mystery thriller. You probably know that. It is one of the most famous novels by the queen of murder mysteries, Agatha Christie. This is the fourth Agatha Christie story that CP has produced. The previous shows include Ten Little Indians, now known as And Then There Were None, way back in 1978, The Mousetrap in 1999, and A Murder is Announced in 2018. Murder on the Orient Express is adapted by Ken Ludwig, known for his comedies, but in recent years he has been adapting classic works to the stage, including last season's production of The Three Musketeers. Now, all the normal trivia and background on the production that I'd usually talk about right now in the podcast is actually covered in a very informative conversation that I had with Scott Clark. So we're going to jump to the end of this section of the podcast and say, the production is directed by Rochelle Stoops. Our production runs just under two hours, including the 10-minute intermission. The show is rated A2 on our production rating scale. That means it is for a broad audience, or the equivalent of a PG movie. That brings down the curtain for Act 1. Stand by for Act 2. I'm now joined by none other than Hercule Perrault himself, Scott Clark. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank me for thank you for having me. Yeah. So, for the three people on the planet who have not heard of Perrault, tell us a little bit about this detective. Well, um, he is one of the more famous detectives in English language literature. Uh, He is a creation of uh, Dame Agatha Christie, a British author. Uh, He first appeared in 1920 in The Mysterious Affair at Stiles and ultimately ended up in 33 of her novels and 50 or more, actually, of her short stories. So she is his most uh, well-known and frequently appearing um, detective. Uh, would you like just a little background on? Sure. On, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's. Uh, who Who is this mysterious detective, and what makes his mustache tick? Okay. <laughs> uh, it, it, the background on the character is a rather unusual. When she first um, introduced the character, I don't think she had any intention that he was going to be this long-standing character, uh, and so a lot of the early works clash with each other in terms of what makes sense in terms of his background. Um, It wasn't until she had had several novels and several short stories that she realized she was suddenly saddled with this guy and had to try to start making it all make a little bit more sense. Uh, He is Belgian. 
If you look at some of the stories, uh, he apparently was already a police officer in Belgium uh, back in the 1890s. Um, Keep in mind our story for the play today, uh, or the play that's coming up, is 1934, The Murder on the Orient Express. Um, And that's also when the novel was originally released. But in the 1890s, he was already in the Belgian police department. Uh, And then sometime during World War I, he ended up becoming a Belgian refugee and ended up settling in the UK. and set up himself as basically a private investigator at that point. So he does have police background, but he's not an official police officer any longer. And at the time that she wrote his first novel, she already thought of him as an old man, uh, that he had been retired. However, the character first appears in a story in 1920. His last published story was 1975. <laughs> uh, so an old man in the 1920s is not going to still be around in the se- in the 70s. He's so. kind of like James Bond. You know, he he does he's ageless. <laughs> kind of, or, or Doctor Who. Maybe yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe he regenerates. Or <laughs> yeah, something. these are other regenerations of. <laughs> um, but she she did fudge around a little bit with that. Uh, she she did not end up giving him an actual birth date, uh, and a lot of his background is sort of sh- um, shaded in mystery um, to make it um, easy to plot future stories without being hemmed in by certain details. I I do have one real interesting bit about Poirot oh, that yeah. I, I like to share, and that is he is the only fictional character in history, fictional character in history that has been featured in an obituary on the front page of the New York Times. Oh my gosh. Okay. You got to, you got to give some details on that. First of all, uh, unlike for instance, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who created Sherlock Holmes and got really tired of him and tried to pitch him off of a cliff. And then the (laughs) the fan uproar was so large that she had to have bring him back eventually. Um, or he had to bring him back eventually. Uh, Christie did not want to face that situation. She knew that this was, to be crass, her cash cow. Uh, <laughs> and that the fans loved Poirot. She herself, within 10 years of having created him, was already uh, tired of Hercule. Described him as insufferable, a detestable, bombastic, tiresome, egocentric little creep. That's who I'm playing, folks. Um uh, the fans did not agree. They they loved him, um, but she was tired of writing him. Um, even ten years after she, even before Murder on the Orient Express, which she then considered one of her two or three masterpieces of her uh-huh. own work. Um, but it, it, she decided she would never give anyone else the opportunity to be the one to kill him off. She wanted to make sure she wrote his final story. And during the World War II years, the beginning of World War II, when uh, London was being bombed, she actually feared for her life. And so she had already created both um, Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple, and she wanted their final stories to be hers. Um, So she wrote their final stories in the 1940-1941 period and then had those stories locked up in a bank vault Ah. with the instructions that they were not to be published until she she herself had passed away and then she could put the exclamation point on their two careers. The Poirot story is his death story. The Miss Marple story is not, but it's intended to be a final story. So... She was ailing from Alzheimer's and other dementia issues in the last couple of years of her life, and the publisher made the decision to publish Curtain, the final Poirot novel, before she passed away so she could enjoy the glory of the public adoration. Oh, sure. So about a year before she herself passed away, Curtain was published. And the New York Times, the day it hit the newsstands, 
put a front page obituary up for a fictional character for the first time and it's never happened again. So, huh. so it's, it's fabulous. And, and, and of course in that obituary, because she never gave him a birth date, they are not able to give a, a birth date <laughs> yes. either. They can give a death date, but they can't give a birth date, but it, it's fascinating. You can find that online very easily. If you just Google Hercule Poirot obituary in New York times, but uh, just one of my favorite little bits of Christie trivia. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really fascinating actually. Yeah. Um, so this is not your first time playing the character though. Um, it's not even your first time playing the character here in Beatrice. True. Um, though it is your first community players production. It is. Unravel that mystery for us. Absolutely. That's an interesting backstory. Um, (laughs) I am from Lincoln, Nebraska, and most of the plays that I've performed in, not all of them, but most of them have been for the Lincoln Community Playhouse, and I've become very active behind the scenes there as well. Uh, the executive director, Maury Enders, there um, asked me to be on their play reading committee several years ago, back in 2016, 2017, approximately. And he explained that, in part, that was because he knew I was a huge mystery fan and an Agatha Christie fan specifically. And the plan had been for you guys here in Beatrice and them in Lincoln to do a partnership where one of you would do one Christie play here in Beatrice and the other city would do one at Lincoln Community. And he he asked me to look through <laughs> to look through Christie's entire body of plays and and people you need to be aware she wrote 20 plays <laughs> but to look for through through all 20 of those plays and find which two plays could share the same stage. In other yeah, words, that was the challenge. The doors, the windows, the, the layout that would match between the two plays without too much uh, of a problem. And I found four plays that would fit the bill. My suggestion to Maury, and I don't know how much of this you were part of the conversation, but my suggestion to him was listen, one of the plays is the only play she ever wrote featuring Hercule Poirot entitled Black Coffee. Um, And although she did not herself write any Miss Marple plays, there was another playwright who adapted one of the the Miss Marple novels to a play. So my suggestion to Maury at the time was, you've got a marketing bonanza here. You've got the two (laughs) greatest detectives from the greatest mystery writer of all time, each of them starring in their own play. Put one on one stage, put one on the other stage, and you've got the, the means of, of promoting a marvelous partnership. So, so that, that's how I got started. At the time that I was reading Black Coffee and the other plays, I had absolutely no intention of trying out for the play. I was just on the play reading committee uh-huh. to help select plays. And I had purchased a copy of the play just because it was easier for me to have a copy of myself for Black Coffee. And the more I read it, the more I thought, you know, this, this is a fun role. I mean, it's got a lot of, of scenery chewing to do, but it, it's such a memorable character. When I first proposed, it was like, whoever gets the role of Poirot has a real cr- crown jewel to work with. And the more I thought about it, the more I decided to go for it. Uh, and I did try out for the Lincoln production of Black Coffee with Poirot as the lead and was one of two or three people they considered. And I got it. So uh, we then did nine performances, just like the Miss Marple did nine performances here in Beatrice. But the for us in Lincoln, our middle weekend of three performances moved down to your stage here mm-hmm. in Beatrice and vice versa. <laughs> your last weekend was up in our, our stage at the same time that we were down here in Beatrice. So that is my history with Poirot. And I thought, that's the last I'm going to ever have a chance to do that. <laughs> and then lo and behold, I saw your season announcement of Murder on the Orient Express. And it's like, 
I don't usually plan that far out in advance. I, I sort of play it by ear as to what plays I want to do, but that honestly is the favorite role that I've ever played. Um, and I knew that it would be a, a feather in my cap to be able to say, how many actors in the Lincoln right. general region can say they've played the same character in two completely different plays for two completely different play companies? Yeah, and and two different you know um, uh, adaptations too. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, with Christie having written Black Coffee, but then this adaptation um, by Ken Ludwig. Um, you know, just stylistically, they're very different kinds of shows as well. Oh yeah, but it's still it's still that same character. the The heart of that character is still yeah is still there. Well, and when we were looking at Christie plays to do back in 2018. Uh, this play had premiered in the UK at that point. It had a 2017 uh, premiere in, in London, but I don't think any theaters here in the U.S. No, had it, aired it at that point. It wasn't available yet. So, um, so yeah, It came out just like a year or two after yeah. the, the collaboration, and it, it came out like right, it really became available right before the pandemic hit. Oh, yeah. Um, and so that's why you're seeing right now, like last theatrical season and this season, everyone all over the country is doing this play yeah. because it was all it was on their pre-pandemic planning seasons and now they're all like okay we're finally back to normal and we need something that audiences recognize oh sure sure that makes sense <laughs> so that's why the show is like like literally like all over you know as as people listening to the podcast may or may not know i'm not going to be around after this show um but the first week that I'm in my new position, they open Murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> I, I, I go to work for two days and then they open the show. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, so, yeah, you know, what do you uh, enjoy about this character? What makes him a character that you're excited to return to? Aside just the, the feather in the cap and collecting yeah. feathers and caps is, is a personal pastime of mine. Oh, sure. But, you know. Well, for me, he's a... He's a mixture of both being larger than life um, in terms of uh, some of the, the, the elements of him are exaggerated. They could almost be considered stereotyped, um, but not quite. Um, but he also, he, he's just got a really interesting personality, in, in my opinion. Um, I have been a huge fan of David Suchet's performance in over 70 episodes of Agatha Christie's Poirot on television. Um, and... I actually was introduced to the character when Albert Finney played him in a 1974 version of um, Murder on the Orient Express. That was the first time I'd ever seen him in a performance in any way. My mother, uh, when I was a, even a preteen, she was a huge mystery fan, and she introduced me to the novels of Agatha Christie. So he's literally one of the first adult mystery authors or she is one of the first adult mystery authors that I ever read, and Poirot just immediately was a character that I could connect with. So I've, I've always had a very um, strong fondness. I always thought it would be far more interesting to play Sherlock Holmes because <laughs> when, when you think of it, he's such an iconic character, Holmes and Watson and whatnot. But given the opportunity to be in Black Coffee, I realized this is a character that has some real interesting depths. And you mentioned that this is a stylistically a different um, play, and it is. Uh, Ken Ludwig is well known for his comedies, and I think he was told when the Agatha Christie estate um, brought him in to, and said, please adapt this play for us, please adapt this novel into a play for us, um, and put a little of your spin on it. Um, there are lots of humorous bits in this, although at the heart it is a serious drama. Mm -hmm. um, and so the difference between Black Coffee 
and Orient Express for me is Black Coffee was a very straightforward mystery that was, uh, other than a few character bits that were a little humorous because some of the characters were a little wacky, um, <laughs> the, the plot of Black Coffee really did not have any built-in humor. Um, but it also didn't have any growth for the character. And if you look at the entire body of Poirot's stories and novels, uh, there are very few moments. He is a character that doesn't change that much. But this, this story is one of the times when he has to question the underpinnings of his very existence, um, what, what he thinks justice and morality mean to him. And... When I read the script, I, my, my tradition is if I'm thinking of trying out for a, a play, I buy the script months in advance <laughs> just so I can be studying it. And when I read the last five or six pages of this, it was like, yeah, this, this is why you want to play in this play. Uh, it is uh, an opportunity to explore a character who is facing a major life moment. So Yeah, yeah, yeah he, he has some really really good monologues in there and especially the the ending moment that you're talking about yeah. where he really kind of reflects on on everything and and yeah you're right he he goes through a change a transformation um as part of that which you know with especially with a detective story a lot of times you don't find that it's no. just you're the you're you're reading it or you're seeing a show just to solve the mystery mm -hmm. you know you're just to see how all the pieces get together and what the twist is um but yeah here there's uh, Perot gets some actual character work. I was re-watching uh, the adaptation of this particular story for that D David Suchet um, series just a few days ago, thinking, I, I hope I'm not just copying things mm. that other actors have done, because that's always a danger with a, a well-known well character that other people have performed. Um, and there, there are some really emotional moments in this play, and I keep thinking to myself, am I... Am I going over the top, am I doing too much with this? And I watched his performance in Murder on the Orient Express uh, on, on television, and no, I'm not even going as, high, as far <laughs> as he did. So, so it's, it's fascinating to know what can be done with this character. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, let's talk about you just a little bit, sir. Sure. Um, I always find it fascinating to find out how people first got involved in the theater, as I jokingly say, what's your, your, your theatrical origin story? What radioactive uh, spider bit you and gave you the bug for theater? Um, so w what, what is that for you, Scott? Well, <laughs> for me, I come from a theatrical family. Uh, my father uh, was Dr. David M. Clark, who for over 30 years was a speech and theater professor at Nebraska Wesleyan University. Um, my family or my parents moved to Lincoln, Nebraska uh, in 1962. I was born in 1963, so I'm, I'm a native Lincolnite, but they <laughs> came from Illinois. And he came specifically to take a position teaching theater at Wesleyan. And so throughout my growing up years, the theater was like my backyard. I mean, I would go, we lived only three blocks away from Westland's <laughs> Theater, so it would be like, go hang out in Dad's office. And, and so I, I, I learned that background very easily. I fell in love with it uh, when I was in, I guess I'd say junior high school. I had my first acting experiences. Uh, my, my church in Lincoln uh, had a youth theater group that every Sunday morning we had two services, an early service and, an, and a late service. The early service was a little free-flowing and more hmm. more um, interesting stuff. And they would do skits to illustrate whatever the scripture lesson for the day was. And it wasn't just straight 
acting out right. the scene. It was interpreting what the meaning behind that day's scripture was in some scene that we could act out. And we had theater students from Wesleyan who came over and led all of us 12, 13-year-olds. And I got to play the lead in uh, The Miracle of St. Anthony. I have no recollection who the playwright of that one was. But, um, <laughs> but uh, it was the a, playwright com- probably doesn't a, a comedy either. about having to change all the fish uh, I mean, and, and loaves of bread and all that stuff. And, and who gets to clean up that mess after the, the party has, <laughs> has happened? Um, so as a 12 or 13-year-old, I had my first lead. Uh, I then started trying out for all my high school plays. When I got into college, for some reason, I had this mental shift and decided that was not something I was interested in. And so after one or two tryouts in the college level, I just dropped out of theater. Even, huh. even though I would still go to all my dad's plays and I would still go see plays in other places, I myself didn't get involved. And I am turning 60 this coming year. Ten years ago, as I was preparing to turn 50, I sort of was looking reflectively back at, at my experiences and realized... I had missed out on so much fun Mm. in the theater. Theater had been so fun. I wanted to get back into it, so I tried out for two plays and got into the second one, and I've just been basically acting again since then. So for the last 10 years, I've been averaging one or more plays per year. That's that's really great, and that's a a terrific example of how important community theaters are to people. You know, because with you having not done anything for a while, you wanted to get back into it, and then, boom, you've got those opportunities. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of thing that uh, the just uh, normal kind of hobbies, normal hobbies, that's a weird <laughs> way to say that. But, you know, it's, it's one of those unique things that only community theater can provide. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, you're you're a you're a, a prime example of how important community theater can be for people. Um, so and you've you've uh, you know been involved in in several shows as you said ever since you got kind of back into mm-hmm. it. Um, are there uh, at at several theaters kind of in the area? You've done stuff in Lincoln. You've done now here. I think you were just in something at the Loft. Right. Um, um, are there any uh, particular role or experience that stand out for you aside from the the uh, Multiple incarnations of uh, Poirot that you're Hercule, going through now. Hercule Poirot. Um, that, as I said before, is the, the role that I am proudest of my accomplishments in is as a Poirot. Uh, of the roles that uh, stand out for me, well, first let me give you a little background. Since my dad was a theater professor, he directed probably 60 to 70 productions over the course of his career. And... A lot of those were plays that I really enjoyed and, and felt a connection to. So anytime I see a play that was something that my dad did years ago, ah. I try out for it. And I have been successful. I, uh, As you said, I was just at um, the Loft Theater in Manly where I played... Um, uh, of course, I'm blanking on the character name, but uh, the doctor in charge of the insane asylum in Harvey, which was a play that my dad appeared in. Mm-hmm. Not, only, not only was it done at Wesleyan, but Wesleyan had just torn down their old theater and was built, built a brand new theater. And to celebrate the new theater in 1979, 80 approximately, they did a production of Harvey in which the staff Ah. did all the acting roles. So I didn't get to play the same role as my dad, but I, I did get to be in Harvey, which has a connection to him. I was also in You Can't Take It With You, which he directed, and The Importance of Being Earnest, which um, he also directed while he was at Wesleyan. So three three plays that I have enjoyed having that connection with um, my dad. I, I dedicate almost all of my acting to my father. So. Oh, that's that's wonderful. But yeah. in addition to that, the, the role or the, the play that I had the most fun prepping and rehearsing and, and actually performing 
was ironically another Ken Ludwig show, so, um, and that was the games afoot, ah, which yes, which this is such a good the community show. playhouse did, and we had the most spectacular set I have seen anywhere. It was just phenomenal and a fun cast, and uh, we laughed so much every single day of the rehearsal. It is a comedy, um, and we had to buckle down at some point, but I just have such fond memories of of the process of doing that show and getting it onto the stage. And I'm so frustrated that we ended up getting snowed out for at least one of our performances, mm. so we didn't get to do all of them. Um, that plus, I also have a fond spot for the very first one after my return to the stage, which was Barefoot in the Park, Victor, ah. Victor Velasco, which was <laughs> which was a tiny little cast. There were only five or no six actors in that, um, but I was made to feel so welcome coming back into the community theater at that point for that first performance, and that just locked me in and, and had me going from that point on. So. That's terrific. That's right, and yeah, that that production of Games of Foot, uh, I saw that because it was like a year or so after we had done it here. Oh yeah, um, and. And yeah, one of my things that I said to Maury, actually, when I had seen the set before you guys opened, I was like, wow, this set is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, you are a wealth of knowledge about uh, Agatha Christie. Uh, what makes her so fascinating and why do you think she has endured to be such an iconic mystery writer that is still you know, a bestseller today. Well, using that as a launching point, I will point out she is the best-selling author of fiction in the English language. The only two things in the English language that have sold more than her are not fiction. Well, I, I guess plays are sort of fiction. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the, the works of William Shakespeare and the Bible are the only two things in English that have sold more than the body of works of, of, of Christie. And uh, a large part of that is, I think, th there is some predictability to her writing. And so when you pick up a Christie, you kind of know what you're getting, no matter which novel it happens to be. It's going to have a certain feel to it. It's going to have a morality play. Uh, she was very big about good and evil. That was, that was something that she really wanted to delineate very carefully which is unusual considering to the play that we're involved in right now because oh, yeah. there, there are lots of shades going on. Yes, there are. Uh, but in most of her novels, it's very clear what is good, what is evil, and that the evil is something that uh, she believed needed to be punished. So I think people that have a strong sense of morality um, appreciate that clearness in her writing. Uh, she traveled the world, so her novels are set all over the place. Uh, her first, uh, she was first married to Archibald Christie, um, which is where she got her um, Christie name, um, and he had an affair. Uh, one bit of trivia about her that I find fascinating is that she disappeared mm -hmm. in 1926 for, I think it was like 10 days, and it was the biggest manhunt in British history at that point, trying to find a person that was well-known to the public, and it turns out that she was just in a health spa sanitarium about 30 miles away from where she normally lived, but there were 15,000 people searching the countryside, oh over a thousand police officers combing everywhere, dredging lakes because they thought she, her body had been tossed <laughs> into a lake. Her, she had driven the family car um, and parked it at the edge of a cliff and they were afraid that she had tossed herself in some dangerous place. But no, she hid. 
she refused for the rest of her life to speak of what happened, and so people have had to theorize what happened, but suffice it to say, <coughs> because of the affair that her husband was having, she got a divorce, kept the Christie name because that's what she was publishing under and decided that that would just continue. When she married her second husband, he was an archaeologist. Um, she had gone on a, a trip to uh, uh, see an archaeological dig in, in Egypt, and... After the second time meeting this guy, she realized she was in love. They married, and she then followed him on all of his archaeological digs. Mm. So a lot of her later novels feature archaeology as, as a major subject. But both that plus the trip that she and Archie went on before their divorce, she did a world tour and absorbed everything ever, everywhere she went and then regurgitated it back onto the page. And so she, she made the world seem smaller to people they could visit all these places through the course of her stories another little bit of trivia is that she is credited as being the first white woman to surf upright standing she, they, <laughs> i think i've read that they, somewhere. they stopped in hawaii and all the native people that were surfing that's how they surfed but nobody no caucasians had surfed standing up they had always just paddled out on a board and remained sitting or lying on the board to surf. And so she, if you look in history books, Agatha Christie is the first white woman to surf standing up. So, yeah. Which is just a funny image because, you know, now we think of her as this this old lady. Yeah, the frumpy type. The so. frumpy, and you're just to imagine, you know, grandma <laughs> on a surfboard. Uh, so... So she is the best-selling author in the English language. She's also the most translated into foreign languages. Um, if you look at the statistics, uh, more of her works have been translated into more, for not necessarily the most languages, but the most copies that have been translated mm. into other languages and then published and sold. So she has that figure. Um, let's see. She is the first grandmaster from the Mystery Writers of America, and that's gone on to be an award that dozens of well-known authors have, have gotten um, over the years, but she was the first. She was one of the founding members of something called the Detection Club, which was a group of um, mystery writers in Britain. Um, it has since opened up to people from other regions around the country, but um, back in the, the founding years, she and, and several other male British authors founded this group uh, that was there to essentially promote mystery publishing and mystery writing, but also they would do charitable things. So if you're interested in tracking down some really quirky Agatha Christie stuff, you can look for a couple of anthologies where they did a round robin, where one of them would start a story, pass it on oh. partway through to another author without any hints as to what was supposed to happen next or who the killer was or what the end point of the story was going to be. <laughs> and eventually the person who started up the, the whole thing would get, get the what had, had gone passed through like a dozen different people's hands and would have to wrap it all up. Oh my gosh, it's like the ultimate game of, uh, of improv. It was, mm -hmm. you, it was definitely yes and as you got those. Yep. Uh, <laughs> There's a couple of those out there. The only one I'm remembering off the top of my head is the Floating Admiral, which is uh, absolutely marvelous. It, it's clunky because you can tell that person number 13 didn't know what person 12 was really intending to happen. Uh. Um, so, so they all go in their own directions. But um, let's see, other trivia things. Uh, Maury Enders, once again, from the Lincoln Community Playhouse, has been doing trips. Um, he's been organizing oh, yes. trips. Um, right now he's um, um, pushing one that goes out to Greece where you can act on the stage of an ancient amphitheater, that kind of thing. But shortly after we did uh, Black Coffee in Lincoln, he put together one 
to London and the surrounding territories. And I think he fully intended that was going to be a thing that Scott would love to go do. And unfortunately, <laughs> I had some other activity that I could not get out of at the time. But as part of that, they went to all these Christie sites in, in London. And that's something I would really love to do because there are two statues up in different places in, in Britain that uh, pay tribute to her after her passing. One is in her hometown, and I will probably mangle the pronunciation. Torquay, I think, is the name of it. And the other is in central London. And uh, they are pilgrimage sites. People constantly are going to them. You can see where the brass has been rubbed um, smooth um, from everybody touching it. So there, there is still, after all these years, her centenary was long ago. Um, and, and she still remains so incredibly popular. I mean, if you look at it, Right now, we're talking about doing Murder on the Orient Express here in, in Beatrice, but there are, have been two new movies featuring mm -hmm. Kenneth Branagh as Poirot. We'll not talk about whether he's an appropriate Poirot or not, but, <laughs> but, but that just shows you that the big-name stars with these all-star casts are still doing Christie works. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't think... I think she's just a never-ending fun. Now, I will have to admit... Some of the material is dated, and if you look at some of her writing, yes, there were some questionable things in terms of modern culture. Right. Um, but you kind of just have to take that with a grain of salt because she published anywhere from 1920, her first novel, to 1975. Most of that focused in the 30s and 40s. And yes, it's a bad thing to say, well, it was just a thing of its time, but unfortunately that is the case. Um, so uh, it, she's not a perfect writer, but I think she is very successful at what she started to try to do. And we talked earlier about the fact that she had 20 plays. She actually was prouder of her plays than oh. she was of her fiction writing. That, that was her personal passion, but she was not as successful at it. She couldn't get as many of them produced as right. big-name big things. However, she does still continue to hold a record in the world of plays, <laughs> which, of course, uh, is tied here to Beatrice as well, and that is that she took one of her shorter works adapted it to the stage as The Mousetrap, which premiered in London in 1952, and with the exception of a short period during COVID when all theaters closed down, it has remained in continuous production since 1952 and holds the record for the longest-running play in stage history. Yeah, yeah, and that's just amazing. And yeah, we did that. It was in my second season here, I think, mm -hmm. um, when, when we produced it. And uh uh, yeah, and I believe I read somewhere that it's finally transferring to Broadway. I uh, yeah, I think I did read. I something think I about saw that. something about that a few weeks ago that that Mousetrap was has never played on Broadway apparently, mm -hmm. um, and is now finally transferring. And then it was also Mousetrap was also the basis of. Um, there was a movie that just came out. Yes, and uh, I'm blanking on the name. I'm losing. I was hoping yeah. you would know the no, title. No, I, um, I. It had uh, what's his name, Rock. Um, uh, yeah. Well, you know, well, in 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 post, I'll uh, come in and I'll edit. It's this movie, <laughs> but uh, but that that film as well as the play Mousetrap um, had that little touch where because it's a twist that they don't want future audiences to be spoiled. At the end of the Mousetrap play, at least in the UK version of it, they come out on the stage and say, please 
Keep the ending of this play a secret. Don't spoil other people's experiences by telling them how it ends. And that's kind of what they did at the end of that movie, too. Yeah, they did. It was, like, they did. It was a nice twist. See yeah. how they run. Ah, yes, the name yes, of the yes, movie. I, I cannot claim that I am smart enough to remember it, but my phone was close enough yep. that, that Google could remember for me. <laughs> well, Scott, we're, we're running out of time here because we've got to get you to rehearsal because the mystery won't solve itself. Um, so as we wrap up, um, what do you think audiences or what do you want to have audiences take away from seeing this production i would like them to come into this hoping to be entertained first of all um that's our ultimate goal i i want you to come into this even if you are well aware of the classic nature of this story and many readers considering it's one of the best-selling mystery novels and best well-known mystery novels of all time you probably know some of the secrets that we're going to unveil on the stage but i want you to come in Wanting, being fascinated to see how we do that. Mm. Um, Ken Ludwig took a play in which there were 12 suspects, <clears throat> condenses that down into eight suspects. So we still have eight people who potentially are involved in a brutal murder. And I just want you to watch the expressions of everybody. We're, we're making a special effort. This, this is one of those plays where you always hear that saying, well, you can just have it on in the background and not really pay <laughs> attention. That's not this play. We want you to sit there in that seat and not just pay attention to the people that are speaking, but look at the reactions of what's going on and all the little tiny details behind the scenes because this is a complex play, and we want you to come away thinking, wow, I, even though I knew how that was going to end, that still impressed the heck out of me. So. Yeah, awesome. So is there anything else you want to add before we uh, ship you off to rehearsal? Well, I'm trying to think if there was any other trivia bits. Um, no, I think we hit most of the details. So yeah. I, I guess thank you for having me on the podcast. And oh, you bet. Especially thank you for casting me as Poirot in... Well Orient I, Express. I, it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. But uh, yeah, no, Scott, and thank you for being on the podcast. And also thank you for the for the commuting and, and everything else. Uh, you know, we really do appreciate down here when, when we have Lincoln volunteers come down to participate. It really just shows um, the quality of experience that yeah. uh, we hope to offer people down there and hope to continue to offer, regardless of who is sitting in the glamorous Community Players Podcast Studios. So thanks a lot, Scott. Thank you. It's time for the Curtain Call. This podcast is a production of Community Players Theatre in downtown Beatrice, Nebraska. Our production of Murder on the Orient Express runs two weekends, February 10th through the 12th and the 17th through the 19th. Tickets are available by calling the box office or visiting our website. Next up on the CP stage in March is the regular season production, Puffs. I'm Jamie Ulmer, and this has been my final regular episode of Places, Please. After 25 years, I'm leaving Community Players and have accepted the executive director position at Theatre Lawrence in Kansas. Don't worry, Community Players does hope to continue producing this podcast going forward. This episode actually marks the third anniversary of the podcast, and we hope it has been and will continue to be a source of information and hopefully entertainment. So I'll just sign off today by saying we'll see you at the theater. Curtain in, house lights up. Thank you, podcast. Make sure to reset your props and hang up your costumes. 